Did you know that when you go to the grocery store and you buy beef from like even the best quality beef, like the regenerative grass fed, grass finished, best beef there is kind of thing, let's say at Whole Foods, the farmer of that beef gets paid about 13 cents on every dollar. The average farmer in the north mid-Atlantic area makes 20000 a year off of their beef or chicken or, you know, whatever they're selling. That's not enough to live on. Last year alone in Virginia, they lost 800 farms left Virginia. What's going on with the food system? What's going on with food scale? And how can we solve all of these problems? As homesteaders, a lot of times we are spending most of our time just trying to provide for our family. But what if there was a solution that we could also provide for our local community? and make a little income off of our homestead in a reasonable way where we were making 84 cents on every dollar versus the 13 cents. There's a lot to this and a lot of unpacking and packing, no pun intended there. And I dive into all this with Daniel Griffith. He has a solution to this and is working towards it. And um, that's what today's podcast is about. Hey, friends. Welcome to the Schoolhouse Life, where we answer your pressing questions and share useful tools for creating your most fulfilling, self-sufficient family homestead. We go back to basics in all things family, faith, and farming, and we're eager to teach you what we've learned, everything from growing a garden to earning an income to living a less toxic and more nature-based lifestyle. We're thrilled you're here and hope you leave inspired to live your life as a schoolhouse too. Hello, friends. Welcome to the podcast. Today, we have the privilege of talking with Daniel Griffith of the Rabinia Institute that is doing amazing things in the world of food, descaling, that kind of thing. And Daniel and I are going to talk about what it looks like to be able to pay farmers a living wage and um, why are farmers not making a living wage now. In the homesteading world, I think what it comes down to is a lot of us are homesteading and don't know how to make any income on the homestead and most of us have jobs off of the homestead. So there's like that whole element also. Daniel, let's dive into your most recent project that you've got going on. Maybe just kind of give us a quick understanding of what's going on there and uh, we'll take it from there. Hey, thanks, Drew. Thanks for giving me the time. I'm uh, excited to be on the on the podcast with you. Yeah, um, so there's, there's a lot going on. And, and I think that's the beauty of the thing. When you start to release control and you and you step back and and you allow abundance to be something that's emergent meaning non-mathematical non-linear and and and, and more co-creative and and self-organizing typically it one uh, makes your life very busy um, <laughs> and two uh, makes the work of such life incredibly potent that's what i call emergent abundance and uh, fortunately and unfortunately, that is the life I'm, I'm happily and currently living in. I say unfortunately because I, I used to take naps and now I have no time for that. Oh, that's a dangerous day. So I know. <laughs> I know. I used to have this phrase, you know, when you're, when you're busy, go for a walk. And when you're really busy, go for a walk and take a nap. Now I'm just really freaking busy. And so I don't, I don't know what I need to do after that, but it, it's not take a nap, unfortunately. Too much good work to be done. So a little bit of a background. My wife and I, we run the Robinia Institute, whose mission is to advocate, educate, and demonstrate the abundance and joy and peace of holistically managed and wild living systems. W what that means uh, in practice is we are the mid-Atlantic hub of the Savory Institute, a global organization 
working to regenerate grasslands through holistic management. And, and we teach, you know, courses on everything managing holistically to rotational grazing type practices for grassland ecology and herbivore management. Uh, we teach agroforestry courses and all sorts of stuff. Butchery courses, we're, we're an institute in the full sense of that word with a capital I. As a part of our work with the institute, we, we very early on, about two, two and a half years ago, realized that no matter how much we can enrich the minds of our students, and I mean, we were training students from all over the country. We have a course next month where we have more people coming from Canada than the mid-Atlantic, uh, let alone the United States. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's unbelievable. Those Canadians are really getting really getting their act together and in many ways more than we are, but that's not neither here nor there. But what we realized was no matter how much we can, you know, inoculate the mind of our students to manage better. What I mean by that is to, to view nature in, in the, through the lens of, of holes and patterns, not instruction sets and complicated manuals, meaning that it's not about how much weight your cattle gain, although that's important. It, it's more about the community in which your cattle live that then fosters an incredible weight gain. It's a change in perspective. Well, that change in perspective and that inoculation of our students' minds is all really interesting, but there's nothing really that follows that, right? We can teach you how to manage your landscape better, but as soon as you start manage, managing the landscape better, you'll, you'll realize you start to grow more grass. And, and as you start to grow more grass, you start to need more cattle or sheep or pigs or ducks or chickens or whatever you guys have. If it's one acre or a hundred thousand acre, it doesn't matter the scale. You start to grow more grass and you start to need more animals. And as you start to need more animals, you start to need a marketplace for those animals, right? Because no matter if your if your context is to make money farming or to just live off the land, regardless, in either case, you need a stomach to put that carrot or cow or whatever it is. And to make a really long story short, years worth of a journey in, in a sentence, it's we found that that really didn't exist, not in the sense that a small holder or human scale farmer or homesteader could participate in. There's a lot of opportunities in this good food or regenerative movement for big farmers. I, I wrote a book, it was published last year, Wild Like Flowers. And, and in the book, I made a comment that I, I thought would drive people nuts and actually drive people away from the book, but it's done the opposite, which I think shows the potency of the, the comment. But I, I make the comment that 2020 agriculture, which is when I started writing the book, is, is very similar, even from a regenerative, from even from a regenerative perspective uh, to 1920s agriculture. Not much has changed. Instead of trying to produce more corn per acre or more bushels of corn per acre, mechanizing how much food we can produce in the landscape and trying to standardize those models to feed the world's hungry billions. Today, we're doing the same thing, but we've added the idea of carbon. I mean, the entire media surrounding climate change and world politics and international relations and agriculture and food production and population densities is surrounding how many tons of carbon can we sequester an acre. So it's not bushels of corn, but it's tons of carbon. And we're focused on it. And we're focused on it from a linear perspective. Well, anyways, that linear perspective, that focus on tons of carbon per acre really contributes to building a system that is really good for the big players. If you have a thousand or 10,000 or a hundred thousand acres and you're running a cow-calf operation, the world looks good for you. It looks good for you because you have a lot of tons of carbon being squashed over a lot of acres of land and you have a lot of product that's, re that's um, gathering and converting the raw resources 
consumes uh, of the natural world over to, you know, beef, a sellable product that is. And there's companies out there buying it. They're buying this beef. And so you, and so not just do you have the ability to participate in many markets, you have the ability to participate in a, in a very standardized market to re- repeat myself twice there. But the idea is in, in 1920s, it was get big or get out. And in, in 2020s, it's get big or get marketing really hard and go to 17 different farmers markets a week and do this and that and this and that, which is fine. I'm not saying there's no hope for smallholder family farms or homesteads. That's not at all what I'm saying. I'm, I, I, I'm saying there is hope, but we have to build a new system. There is no hope in the current system. I just, I don't think that's true. I was talking with somebody the other day, they'll go unnamed here and, you know, a regenerative company selling really good meats from really good farms and, and they're buying it for unbelievably low prices to these farms. Uh, my wife and I outside what of Rangoon, size, What size farms were they buying it from? Like, are we still talking big farms or are these like family farms? Well, I mean, in comparison to homesteaders, you know, very big, uh, maybe a yeah. thousand acres or less, you know, maybe let's say 500 to 2000 acres yeah. some, somewhere in there. And, and so to be very clear, that's a great, it's a great question to push me towards a definition. What is a big farm? Right. Yeah. Right. So uh, I'll, I think, you know, make sure I come back and answer that, but to, but to drive home the point I was, I was trying to make it's, you know, there, my wife and I, we, you know, we run the Rabini Institute and we also run a 400 acre farm here in central Virginia, which in my opinion is a very sizable farm. I, I, I sometimes want to get bigger just so we have more of an impact, but I mean, I immediately check myself and realize that 400 acres, it's, it's truly, I mean, it's massive for one family to operate, Yeah. but we couldn't sell our products at, at, at those prices, they were, they were simply too low. I mean, they were a sixth of, of what we need, one, one sixth of what we need wow. in order to be just even a cash flow neutral operation. And uh, what I'm not mentioning here is our farm. It's called Timshaw Wildland. We've been, we've embarked on a three-year rewilding project where we're trying to decrease input costs to almost nothing, right? And so what I'm saying is we're at a decent scale, 400 acres. We're on a three-year, we're in year three of a rewilding project where we're trying to reduce input costs and our costs are still six times higher than these companies wow. are willing to willing yeah. to pay. And so I hope that's, uh, I hope I've elucidated well the, the problem of today. And, yeah. and you, you know, you've marketed it locally and, and that's perfectly fine. Even on the homestead, even on a smaller hold, you know, smaller scale farm, time is not something we have in buckets lying, right. you know, beside us. It's, it's work. Farming is work. Farming is risk. There's a lot of ups and there's a lot of downs. And, and I'm not sure there's a future that exists where in order to make it as a farmer, in order to just be alive tomorrow, to be able to pay your mortgage, to pay your property tax, whatever it is, you have to spend 20 plus hours a week marketing your products and provisions. Right now, that's the case. I'm not too sure that exists too much longer in the future. And, and why is this? You know, I'm saying a lot of big things here and, and I'm trying to be pretty precise. But if I could take a moment, let, let's let's analyze this. Why is there less hope today than there was two or three years ago for farmers marketing their products locally, you know, on their own backs, right? Carrying their own provisions, their own meats on their backs to local communities and townships and farmers markets and whatever it is. Why, why doesn't that exist as abundantly today as it did even three years ago? It, in my humble opinion, and after years of trying to solve this issue myself, I, I, I feel pretty confident that when Amazon bought Whole Foods, if you live close to a city, and when I say city, I mean small. I don't mean New York City. I mean 
Charlottesville, Virginia, Greensboro, North Carolina, whatever it is, you are now able to buy 100% grass fed, grass finished, regenerative beef delivered to your door, ordered online the same day, Yeah, the same day. And you get to do that for seven bucks a pound. We're training the consumers to be consumers. That, that one instance, in my opinion, although, you know, many tangents correspond to it. Amazon isn't the only one, in my opinion, ruining the local food system, <laughs> but it's a, it's a real, you know, Jeff Bezos is just a great guy to pick on. In my opinion, it's, it's a good illustration. He's leading the way in trying things. <laughs> he's, he's leading. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so what do we do? Some of that was doom and gloom. I'm not a doom and gloom kind of guy. I got no time for that. Right. I'm a pretty jolly and hopeful guy. And so what's the solution? I think the solution is many fold and, and we here are only scratching the surface, but, but our current model is building a local food system by descaling and unconstructing the entire thing. We've built what's called the Commonwealth Network. The Commonwealth Network is a community of verified regenerative and human scale local farmers, which I can define all those words if needed, that, that gather together in the name of opportunity, of, of communal opportunity. What I mean by that is opportunity that exists only within the bounds of community, no rustic individualism you know, allowed. Uh, I think individualism is an amazing thing. I think individualism that denudes the possibilities and, and potential abundances of community is, is uh, not a very abundant thing. And, and social reciprocity. So it's a community of verified regenerative human scale and local family farms that gather for abundance, opportunity, and reciprocity. And, and out of that, there's tons of tangents I'm sure you're going to ask me about. We've, we're aggregating all of those provisions uh, through a decentralized and descaled distribution system where food is grown locally, processed locally, warehoused locally, stored locally, ordered locally, delivered locally, consumed locally, all within 30 miles, while the consumer still has the conveniences of ordering meat online always having options for inventory and getting that food, you know, delivered to you a couple of days to a week later, depending on where they are in the distribution and delivery radius. And it's delivered by humans, not FedEx. Humans that, you know, need work and, and all other things. Yeah. And so that's, that's been our solution. I'll stop talking now. That was a lot. I'm no. sure you have tons of questions. Point Please. me in the right direction, sir. <laughs> well, the thing that sticks out to me is going all the way back to 1920s, I think that that brings back a lot of, to me, in 1920s is, in agriculture is where we left the family farm. And would you say that that's probably like an accurate thought there? Yes, yes and no. Um, what you're getting at is absolutely true. In the 1920s, we saw the true commercialization of agriculture. We had long seen the commercialization of agriculture, long has, you know, have countries going back to Roman and even Greek times, even Sumerian culture. Uh, when we look at the archaeological record, they traded goods, food, salts, whatever it was, meats, dehydrated meats. Food has always been a trading good. And so it always migrated with people. But the majority of what a human consumed on the average day was their food or their neighbor's food. Right. Food right. as a nourishing tradition has always been local. The American colonies in the early uh, 1700s and really the entire half, later half of the 1600s we, we exported most of the food that we produced from a commercial sense, but almost all of the foods that nourished the American colonists were grown locally, right? So there's always been an international market for food, yeah. but there's always been the home's hearth, which cooks and, and prepares 
the nourishing traditions of the local community. Yeah. If that makes sense. In 1920, we saw the globalization of agriculture. That Maybe makes, that's a better way. Yeah, that's of, a better of, way. Yeah. Complete yeah. globalization. Not just was there, you know, there's always been global opportunity for food and food provisions. Like I once heard somebody say that tomatoes are an imported crop to Italy. And that just blew my mind. That just illustrates <laughs> that point all the yeah. way through and through. Yeah. It blew my mind. So like in Israel, all the beef, like all is a huge statement, but most of the beef is imported from Australia. Like the, you know, you think this land flowing with milk and honey, like they would have their own meat, but they like, kind of like you're saying, they export more than they like hold on to as themselves, as a country. Yeah. I think the conversation that, that needs to be had about food and, and nourishment has to return locally. I was talking to yeah. an individual recently where he made the comment that it's not until people are consuming foods like they consume wine will our mm. landscape heal. Yeah. Right. I mean, think yeah. about it. When you go to wine country, you're in wine country, right? Yeah. Excuse me. And when you're drinking the wine coming from this valley as opposed to that valley, you're drinking this valley. When you yeah. go to that valley, you're drinking that valley. So you're eating and you're tasting it and you're, and you're subtly enjoying the landscape yeah. through wine. And it's and it not until he made the comment that that same reality extends through all of our nourishment, not just our pleasure drinking, if you will, of, of fermented, fermented goods. Well, the landscape heal. And what I think he meant by that is there's two things that we're focused on here at the Commonwealth Network and, and Commons Provisions is the name of the meat, meat retail the uh, provision online retail site. But at these two organizations, we, we think of locality as an important thing for two reasons. The first of which is from a very real nutritive perspective. Today, so you're sitting in Greensboro area, I'm sitting in Nelson County, Central Virginia. My body, due to my skin's porous nature, due to my in you know, inhaling and exhaling of breath, due to my eyes, what they see, my ears, what they hear, my body is adapting and responding to stressors constantly. When I breathe in, I'm breathing in the toxins and the beauties of my surrounding environment. When you do the same thing, you're breathing in the same, or a, a very different, you know, toxin, stressor, beauty, whatever it is. And your body has to respond to this. And, and then you think about a cow standing in a field outside of your house or just down the road from your, from your abode there. They're also breathing. And they're also seeing, and they're also feeling, and their skin has pores. Even if it's different from a human, they still have it. They're, they're responding and adapting to these same stressors that your body is, and, and they're surviving, and they're solving for it. And they're consuming forages that are adapting to the same stressors because forages breathe. It's the photosynthetic process. Air and oxygen and you know, all of these things come together in photosynthesis to produce vegetative you know, leaf cover. The cow is grazing that life in a local sense is adapting and thriving in unison in this community. And so when you're eating local foods, you're eating an adapted, an adapted life organisms reality. Does that make sense? I don't know if I'm saying that. It does. Yeah. I was actually going to kind of push you towards that <laughs> because we've talked about it before. And I just, I love that idea of like, Lacey and I keep pointing out like scale recently. We've, you know, like, why is this happening? And, you know, good or bad. And it's often because of scale. Um, usually, usually you notice the bad more than the good, I think, <laughs> which I don't know what that says, but with the scale, you know, as soon as you get past like a certain radius, you start 
losing all of those beautiful things that you were talking about. And I, I think a lot of times, like, even from a health perspective, what's going on in the world as far as health is directly related to scale. You know, people have gotten away from good food. And I know you, you talk a lot about like happy cows, you know, versus sad cows and the same kind of thing. You know, if we're all consuming sad cows, our society is going to be sad. Like there's an emotional and a spiritual level that I think when you start scaling back down and coming back to people that are concerned about the bottom dollar, but also are concerned about the animal's well-being also, you know, not from a monetary standpoint, but from like a spiritual and just because they're good people perspective, you know, you start seeing other things happening. Yeah. And, 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 it, and from a scientific perspective, we see that to be true. And, and for the listener's sake to make this unbelievably potently true for them in a very simple sense, if a cow consumes grass tainted with herbicides, pesticides, 4D, paraquat, you pick it, it ate it. That's really bad for many reasons. It's really bad for the soil life. It's really bad for the cow in terms of its own microbiome inside of its gut, inside of its rumen. But it's also really bad for the human because there's chemical, those same chemicals, there's residues in the meat and the blood system. And so when we consume that meat, although we might cook the meat and we just, you know, we lose the blood in that sense, we don't cook the chemicals out of it. And so we inherit those chemicals. When you're eating chemically infused meat, you are inheriting those chemicals. We see this in antibiotics and we see these in fungicides, pesticides, herbicides, and the like. And so if modern science as modern science likes to do, they like to understand things and for better or worse, modern science has, has understood that emotions also have chemical realities. And so if you're very happy, your body is also producing high amounts of serotonin in the body. We don't know if that's the derivative of happiness or the, or the, the, the thing that's producing the happiness. And for this conversation, it doesn't matter. The point is happiness and the chemical serotonin go hand in hand. They're parallel realities. And so if a cow grazing herbicide infused pastures are then infusing you with herbicides, you consume them, a cow that is really happy, that's full of serotonin, is also infusing your body with serotonin. Mm, It's a very easy jump to make between glyphosate and happiness. Right. Right. I mean, how funny is it? How how much would Bayer just scoff at us? Uh, The company that manufactures (laughs) and and, and owns, you know, manufactures glyphosate and owns Monsanto, Bayer, that is. Yeah. Um, the marvelous people at Bayer, we're, we're, we're utilizing their same realities to prove that happy cows actually make happy people. Yeah. And unhappy cows actually make scientifically, mathematically, linearly, direct relationships here, unhappy people. And so maybe our modern epidemic of depression and anxiety and loneliness and social bifurcation, right? I mean, what if some of this pertains to the foods we were eating? being raised in socially bifurcated realities. Right. I mean, come yeah. on, this is, this is too simple. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think you like go to a feedlot and you see like those drone shots of like a feedlot from like, you know, a few hundred feet up, few thousand feet up. Like, I mean, it's insane. Like th- those cows are not happy out there, you know? And like, that's where most of the food that most people are consuming is coming. I think I wanted to talk. And and by the way, just to be clear, when you're saying most of the food for most of the people, when I heard that, my mind just immediately said, well, not me. And then I want to just make this clear. I want to make this clear. Right now in the state of Virginia, there is being meat sold as local sustainable beef in particular grocery stores from particular uh, food distributors from particular local Virginia farms, all of these people unnamed, where it's a feedlot. Local sustainable beef in Virginia sold at the supermarket 
is grain fed, grain finished feedlot. This is central animal feeding operation meat, local and sustainable meat. That is the reality we live in. And by the way, that only hurts local farmers. Not does it just hurt local consumers in the sense that you're eating what you believe to be local and sustainable beef and it's actually killing you. But now local and sustainable farmers who are offering beef from cows that are happy, not feedlot based, rotationally grazed or holistically managed in green, lush pastures where they're mooing and they're running and they're happy. Like that's the same meat in the marketplace. Right. This system hurts consumers and producers. That, that's a key, key note to make. Anyways, I interrupted you. Keep going. Uh, I was going to say, I, I think again, like to your point, again, is scale, you know, like when you get to that point, it's difficult. I mean, it, it's a difficult thing, but when you get to that point of grocery store scale, you lose that connection. Even if it is considered local, I think it's not local enough, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. Really good point. I said there was two things, two ways we see local. One is this from a nutritional adapting to stress perspective. And the other one is just common sense. Right. You know, when Thomas Paine in, in 1776 wrote the pamphlet Common Sense during the, you know, right, the leading up to the American Revolution, he uh, didn't put his name on it. Huh. He didn't put his name on the pamphlet. Now, really could have just been this really weird vanity play, which I won't get into from a historical perspective. But on the other side of it, it it's just so what what he said needs no author because it's common sense mm. that 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 was part of his point. What he said needs to be substantiated by no author. You know, if Stephen King writes a novel, people read it because Stephen King wrote it. Right. Uh, it's not because the novel is good. Realize that realize that common sense was written to not need an author. Interesting. Really, really interesting. And in the same way, local food coming down to scale is just common sense. It costs no money to walk down the road, visit your local farmer and buy their meat. It costs no money to facilitate that transaction. The only money that is required is the actual purchasing of the provisions. It costs a lot of money for wholesalers and retailers and grocery stores to drive a massive, you know, semi-truck to these bigger farms, haul up the cattle, drive those cattle across the country to a, you know, USDA inspected processing facility. All the meat is then packaged and it's distributed from there in these massive freezer trucks, 18 wheelers, massive walk-in freezers on wheels to co-packers. Those co-packers then unpackage the meat and then repackage it in prettier packages. And it's shipped from there and blah, blah, blah. And there's three other steps. And then it finally gets to the grocery store and they charge you an unbelievable dollar for a really, really red piece of cardboard is, is what it is. Not just that, but entire during that entire process, the meat has been frozen and unfrozen completely four to five times. Really? Wow. I did not realize that. Four to five times is the average amount of rotations from frozen to completely thawed. Your standard grocery store meat will go through. Now, what if you get to like, you know, you get whole foods and you see that like meat hanging that's like dry aged. Is that the same thing? Or is that like, I think that's a unique case that uh, doesn't pertain to a lot of what I've said in, in, in terms of where it came from. Okay. My gut is it's local sustainable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> talk and, and, to, talk yeah. to me about the the farmers within your network that you're forming. You you mentioned the word human scale. Like what are what's your definition of human scale or what are what are you looking for on that level? I've thought long and hard because you know, so we, we have a, a community of farmers. Uh there's about 30 or 40 of them now. I've had an unbelievable amount of conversations and every farmer that we've brought onto the network has asked me that question. And in the beginning, I didn't really know human scale just sounded right to me. 
Yeah. And, I, and I hope today I can, I can provide a, a pretty legitimate definition of what we think human scale is. A human scale farm is a farm in which when you arrive at the farm, you see happy people on their own feet standing on the ground working. There's not 17 tractors whipping all about. Every single person isn't jumping in farm trucks to drive everywhere. It's, it's human scale. Mm-hmm. They might have a tractor. They might have a farm truck. They might have a UTV. It doesn't matter. It might have an ATV. Whatever it is, they don't need that to work the farm. The farm can still live in the human scale component of management. Humans are still making the decisions. Humans are still carrying buckets, right? There's not these huge grain silos just shooting out meat as if it was an irrigation, you know, system in your garden, you know, whatever. just, no, 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 no. You would go there and you would say, this is, this is a happy place with cars whizzing all about and tractors going back and forth. Yeah. That's not a happy place. I wouldn't let my kids run around there. Like just, just early, right before this call, we had to move on our farm. We had to move uh, 12 heifers from one side of the road to the other. And my wife's gone. She's actually hauling some cows from Pennsylvania today. So I had all three of our children. We have a four-year-old, a three-year-old and a one-year-old. And, uh, and I gave the four-year-old, you know, one end of the rope and I gave my three-year-old another end of the rope. And I told him to stretch it out real tight. And I put our one-year-old in the middle of the rope. And we just gently push the cows across, you know, the road from one side to the other. It's an old county road. Don't worry. But <laughs> that, that's human scale. If you would have come onto our farm, you would have seen three kids, four and under, happily saying, come on, cows. Come on, cows. Right. And, and you would wanted to have had, you know, a meal and you would have smiled and you would wanted to have taken pictures and you might have even been inspired to write a poem. I mean, I was watching my three kids do this. I wanted to write a poem yeah. about how awesome, awesome the moment was and how cool it is for a one-year-old to be able to say, at one, one years old, I drove a group of cows. Right. Um, that's human scale. Yeah. That's human scale. The two words there are happiness and peace. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Happiness and peace. That's human scale agriculture. Yeah. A lot of I stress, think- a lot of pain. Sometimes you freeze to death, but happiness well- and peace. Yeah, I think there it makes me think of like the best. What's the best fertilizer for the pasture? It's the farmer's footprint. You know, Mm -hmm. yes. Like you know, that's the having that connection. Like I know with my kids, like you know, we've got this leased land property going now, and they have names for all the cows. And every time I go out there and come back, they want to know how each cow is doing. And I know when we visit your farm, like you have a stupid amount of cows. And still you're like, oh, that one is like, and you know, you know, the history yeah. about each one of those cows and yeah, that kind of sick gale and connection. I think again, goes back to, you know, making better food, better quality food. Yeah. There, there's a social component last year, this past autumn, I did a, a webinar with a guy named Fred Provenza. He wrote a book called nourishment. It's one of the top books I think ever written in terms of animal husbandry, Fred Provenza nourishment, pick it up, read it. It's a great book. I, I did a webinar with, with that author and with Fred and, and, and his whole thing is in animal husbandry, especially modern regenerative animal husbandry at any scale, homestead, larger farm, doesn't matter. We're missing a significant component. We're thinking about ecology. We're thinking about soil health. We're thinking about regeneration as a carbon sequestering grass growing tool and thinking about cows and how they're fertilizers and things. And what, what we're missing is the community component. We're missing the relationships of the herd. What if, and this kind of gets into the book that I wrote last year, what if herd effect, a term that the regenerative movement uses to describe what an herbivore, what a cow, a sheep, a goat would do to a grassland in a very good way, 
what is the effect that the herd has on the landscape? Herd effect is more than a herd invariably affecting its local ecology. It's also something that's very self-organizing, self-organizing in the sense that mothers and daughters, aunts and cousins and, and everybody else in between operates as a singular herd mm. and they protect each other. Yeah. You know, the first chapter of my book, it was uh, a new calf was being born and it was a, it's a short story. And we were trying to tag the calf and we named him Banyan. Uh, it means a blessing in, in, in Celtic, I think, Celtic, I think. Well, anyways, we named a Banyan a blessing and his mom, Branya, who stood in our way and wouldn't let him touch it, wouldn't let us touch him. And then Branya's sister, Leora, came over, big horned cow. We raise Irish textures, huge horns. And she came over. And to protect, you know, to, to protect us from tagging Banyan, protect Banyan from being tagged by us, I guess you would say. And then out of nowhere, uh, Blythe's yearling heifer, uh, a heifer calf that she had last year came over. Her name is Blythe, came over and she is a big, you know, horn dexter as well. And they all stood there, right? The triumvirate of this, you know, this female group, a family. I mean, yeah. my God, this is a family yeah. protecting Banyan, right? This is herd effect. This is human scale agriculture, not because it's human, right? But because it's based in relationship, yeah. peace and happiness. That, my friend, is an agriculture, I think, that will save the world. Right. But we have to build a system that supports that kind of agriculture because to kind of go back to the beginning, today's systems don't support human scale agriculture. It's get big or get out or get big or by God, hire a big marketing team. Right. Right. Or on Saturday mornings, the husband goes to one farmer's market, the other, you know, the wife goes to another farmer's market, the kids kind of split down the center with who they want to hang out with that night. Then at 5 a.m. you're off the farm and at 5 p.m. you're finally back and you don't have a family Saturday meal. You barely eat Saturday as it is for lunch or breakfast. There's, there's no peace or happiness there. Do it because you like doing it. Don't do that because you have to do it. That's the difference. Don't take me wrong. Go to farmer's markets. Do it. But do it because you want to do it. Don't do it because you have to do it. Because if you don't do it, your farm will fail. That, that is a very sad reality. And yeah, so, so that, I mean, that ultimately, like, kind of, like you said, bringing it all back around, like, the relationship, the community relationship, the human scale, all of that is beautiful. But what's your solution? Because, I mean, at the end of the day, you're right, like, but we can't sell it. Or we work ourselves to death and eventually fail. It blew my mind that where the homesteaders conference and one of the lead speakers there said that most homesteads get, fail in six years. Most homesteaders only last six years and then their homestead's gone. Wow. And I know, like I saw recently you posted stats about like farmers in Virginia and how quickly Virginia is losing farmers. I don't think that there's a bunch of farmland sitting out there empty. I think large conglomerations are buying up yeah. those small holder plots. But 800, by the way, 2021, Virginia lost 800 farmers. Yeah. And how many, do you remember how many acres? Millions. I, it, I would have to look. Yeah. It's Unbelievable. A, it was an insane amount. I looked at that in my jaw dropped. Like I had to reread it because I was like, that can't be right. Like I know. Yeah, it's, but so, I mean, that brings it back to like, we're Can all I, proactive. So like, what do we do? What, yeah. What's the solution? Yeah. I, to really, before I answer that, let me make this comment. The eight, we didn't lose 800 farmers because of climate change, by the way. Right. That, that's a lot of what the media wants you to believe. Climate change is hurting the United States agriculture. Yeah. 
climate change is, did, I mean, maybe one or two of those, I, I can't speak for all of them, but I can guarantee you that the grand majority of them did not get out of farming because farming is hard from an ecologic sense today, as opposed to yesterday or the year before. This is a large issue. One of the issues is urban sprawl, all of that stuff, but it's also because farming is not a business. Yeah, Agriculture today is not a business in the human scale, local sense. We, we, we in, in the formation of our Commonwealth network, uh, we, we ran a, a, a pretty sizable poll in the mid-Atlantic. We polled a grand, grand number of farmers, you know, no more than a couple hundred acres and, and some homesteads, you know, of an acre or two or 10. And we asked what was their yearly income off the farm on average. And by the way, we asked more larger farmers, more towards the 100, 200 acres than the one to two acres. On average, guess how much money those farms made a year? Total family income, husband and wife put together full time on the farm. 25,000? 20,000. Wow. That's close. 20,000. 20, that's insane. It's unbelievable. I'm, I'm sorry. You cannot pay your property tax or a mortgage or take your kids to the local park. I mean, you don't even have the freedom to, like that 20,000. That's it. Right. Yeah. It's a, it's a sad reality. You know, so what, I mean, if you have a family of any size, you have to have an off farm job or you're living on food stamps. I mean, exactly. When, when the, when the local consumer realizes that even their local farmers are on food stamps, like uh, of the same economic strata right. as the, as the people in our, in our social, social life that are on food stamps, we realize that the people producing the food are on food stamps. This cannot be the future because the idea is not to keep families on food stamps. Right. Right. That, that's, that's not the mission of food stamps. The mission is rising together, right? Like a, like a boat on the ocean. When the waves come, we all rise. Right. That, that has to be a part of the solution uh, for everybody, not just farmers. I'm talking about a, a whole an entire social reformation here, but that must include farmers. So what's the solution? So to be very clear, we are currently working through a solution. We only have partial answers now, but to, to describe it, the Commonwealth Network, as I said, is a network of verified regenerative human scale and local family farms that gather for opportunity and social reciprocity. What that opportunity is, is one, all of our farms undergo annual EOV inspection. EOV is ecological outcome verification. This is a landscape monitoring verification procedure, protocol, that can verify the regenerative status of a land base. And so we all, we gather in this Commonwealth network under that. I don't care if you raise donkeys or cattle, sheep or goats, chickens or ducks. I don't care if you move them once a day or 12 times a day. If you're verifiably regenerative, meaning that you have, you've proven this ecologically, scientifically and mathematically to be regenerative. And I have done the same thing. Differences aside, we operate in principle. Right, and we gather underneath of that. So EOV, ecological outcome verification, is the first step, and all of our producers have access to that at no cost. The second thing is mentorship and training. We provide mentorship and training opportunities for all of our farms to increase their abilities to do good work. To do good work, that might be in their communities from a holistic decision-making perspective. How do we make decisions better in, in all senses of human action, all the way to the soil food web, soil ecology, how to build soil organic matter, how to increase forage, how to rotationally graze your cows, all of that stuff. And so we, we have mentorship and, and, and training opportunities for our farmers. We also have this really cool system, which I know you've been a part of, which we call the calf inoculation system, yeah. where we take literally truckloads of dairy calves that are donated to us. We take them, we acclimate them, we train them to better, to better management, 
in terms of rotating through pastures of single strand poly wire, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then we redonate those cows to people or farmers, I should say, in our community, right? And so instead of you trying to raise, you know, spend thousands of dollars to build your own cattle herd, do that. But at the same time, here's three free cows, right? Yeah. Raise them, make six thousand dollars, right, and take that to go fund your herd, right? Instead of going to get off-farm income or off-farm investment capital, right, to buy your cows, raise free cows to get generate money, and it, it's it's a really interesting system. We've donated sixty-five cows this within the last calendar year. That's a lot. Which, yeah, it's, it's a lot. So that that's a pretty fun system. And, and then one of the last opportunities is market. We we aggregate all of our farmers, all of our community of farmers' provisions, their meats through what's called Commons Provisions, an online retail marketplace where in in where where the only real comment I want to make here outside of it just being local food raised locally for local families delivered locally by human beings, we're paying our farmers 84 cents of every dollar that the consumer spends. 84 cents on the dollars what our farmers make as compared to if you go to Whole Foods and buy, you know, very, you know, regenerative grass-fed and finished beef, that farmer makes about 14 cents. And even some of our other online competitors uh, who are trying to do better than Whole Foods, uh, they get to like 20 to 30 to 35 cents on the dollar. And so what we're trying to do is build a system where farmers don't have to go to the farmer's market, but they get to make not just a livable wage, but generate lasting wealth for their communities, for their families, for their future generations, whatever it is, they make an actual income, not $20,000 a year. Right. Yeah. Working 70, 80 hours a week. And, and so that's that's the system that we've we've been co-creating for the last two years. I mean, when you think about 84 cents on the dollar versus like 13 cents or even 30 cents on the dollar, I mean, that's a that's a huge difference. I can't imagine like working the cows out there, you know, like think about the worst day in August or the worst day in February, you know, and thinking yesterday, about, yesterday yeah. in Central Virginia, it was 35 and raining. It was horrible. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's like rain. It's not, it's not snow. It's not ice. It's like, what is this? I'm freezing and wet. But, you know, like in thinking like half of this work I'm putting in is going to somebody else, like, you know, I to co packers and yeah. freight companies. Right. Not to somebody else, to something else. These, these right. things are inanimate. Something, yeah. Again, worthless objects. Yeah. Again, like scale, like something that's not needed. Like, Yes. I, I'm going to have to sacrifice this because otherwise I can't sell them at all, you know, but yeah, man, that's a, that's a crazy number. So yes. what, chilling. how are you guys yeah. getting around that? Like what, how, what's your system or how, what it, what's the magic sauce so far that you figured out on that? I think the magic sauce so far, I mean, one's common sense going back to Thomas Paine. I mean, it's just, it's common sense. I mean, yeah. like I said, it doesn't cost any money to get on your feet and walk to your local farmer you know, just down the way. It's, it's a little yeah. bit of a pointless example because we all can't walk to our local farmers. My point is local food costs less to yeah. the end consumer. If we take out federal, you know, stipends and taxes and everything else, which I'm not going to get it even into. Yeah. But, but local food is, is very cheap in terms of getting it to your door. And so what we've done is we've created a system where food doesn't travel more than 30 miles. So it's raised. So imagine just a 30 mile radius, you know, yeah. on a map around your house. That's small. That's small. Very, very small. That That's what we're trying to get to right now. I, you know, sometimes we're 30, sometimes we're 45 miles. We're trying to build the network and yeah. you know, we're, we're working through the kinks, but the vision is 30 and we're very close, but we're not there yet. Not uniformly there yet. Um, 
but draw, you know, draw a 30, 30 mile radius around your house. And, and the food that you order from our online marketplace will come from farms within that radius, right? Processed within that radius um, or just outside of it, depending on how much processing we're able to, to commandeer. Warehoused absolutely in that radius, delivered in that radius by human beings that live in that radius to families that live in that radius, right? So this food never leaves that radius outside of perhaps processing, which we're still working through. It's a very arduous thing to work through USDA processing. But outside of processing, what I'm saying here is, is undeniably true. And this is very cheap, very cheap. Working within FedEx's mainstream distribution model is, is very expensive. Very expensive. Yeah. Another thing is pride. I don't, I don't, vanity. I don't, I don't know what to call it. When we buy meat from our farmers, right? So, you know, we pay our farmer 84 cents, and then we resell it for a dollar. It's not really totally accurate, you know, we're, but in terms of the dollar breakdown, yeah. but the actual consumer spend, that's how it works. So we, we buy it for 84 cents. We sell it for a dollar, but we never repackage it. You see, our farmers already have meat in packages sitting in their freezers. We don't take that meat, thaw it out, send it to a co-packer, let them repackage it in Commons Provisions packaging, because why does Commons Provisions matter, right? We are the facilitator of abundance. We are not abundance. Three Springs Farm, Verdant Acres Farm, Timshul Wildland, Riffle Farm. I mean, I can name you 40 different farms. Those, that is the abundance. Yeah. That is the abundance. Commons Provisions is, is, is the facilitator of that abundance. We don't matter, right? And so it's a reallocation of pride, pride being a negative thing in, in the brand sense and positive thing for the farmer sense. And so what we do to save costs is when we buy the meat in Three Springs packaging, we sell it as Three Springs packaging. We don't, we don't denude that abundance by repackaging it, placing our label on it. To me, that's and so better. we save about $2 a pound, by the way. Oh, wow. I mean, it's, it's an unbelievable amount of cost that these companies go through to make sure that the packaging is up to par when it already is. It's just, you don't have your logo on it. Wow. I could probably give you 10 different examples, but just by using common sensical, humble business practice, Yeah. right? Letting Three Springs Farm, I just, we, I just, we just bought some meat from Three Springs. So they're in my head, <laughs> but like letting, you know, uh, Evan and Karen Boone is their names of Three Springs Farm, letting their name be on the package. To yeah. me, is beautiful. For sure, yeah. Let them get the credit for an amazing product of a verified regenerative grass born, fed, and finished amazing cow yeah. producing unparalleled nutrition, nutrient-dense beef. Let them get the credit because it costs the consumer less and the farmers make more. Right. This is a yeah. good system. Yeah. A good system theoretically. You know, we're right. only a couple years in, but that's the system I want to be a part of. I love it. I think that I think we need to end right there because that's that's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much more I want to dive into. Maybe we'll do another podcast another day on it. Anytime. So give us the breakdown. You've kind of mentioned a little bit, but I, I always appreciate a podcast that tells me like it, directly where to connect. So people in Central Virginia, and then people outside of Central Virginia, give it give it all. To yeah. Me. So if, if you are listening to this podcast episode and you are not a farmer or a homesteader, you are going to the local grocery store or farmer's market to buy your meats. Go to eatcommons.com, eatcommons, C-O-M-M-O-N-S.com and try it out. Order your provisions there. You're helping 40 local verified regenerative human scale farms. You're doing it at the exact same price. I mean, we're not really comparable in prices to Whole Foods. Um, because it's just an entirely different product. We're about a dollar more expensive than Whole Foods, but come on, I, I think it's totally worth it. So if you're not a 
farmer, you're not a homesteader, and you're in Central Virginia, check out eatcommons.com. We would love to serve you and provide you nutrient-dense, verified regenerative good meats. If you are a farmer or a homesteader, you're interested in participating within this community, visit commonwealthregen, R-E-G-E-N, commonwealthregen.com. Sure, Drew, you can put these links in the show notes or something, but check us out. That's all about the Commonwealth Network. Uh, There's also a contact page there. Fill out the form indicate your interest. You know, I'm happy to jump on a phone call with you. Right now, we are trying to build out the entire mid-Atlantic. We need more farms, more homesteads, more activity from Pennsylvania, Maryland, West Virginia, Virginia, North Carolina, over to Tennessee, back up through Kentucky, and into West Virginia, Pennsylvania, again, where I started. So if you're in that region, and you're a farmer or homesteader, check out commonwealthregen.com, and we would love to talk to you. Awesome. Thank you so much, Daniel. I appreciate this and it's very inspiring and hopeful and appreciate it. (laughs) (laughs) Just, just thrilled to be here. Thanks, Drew. All right, friends. Thanks for listening to that episode. Make sure to find out how you can get involved with Daniel. Also, have you grabbed today's ticket to Skillshare? We're running out of spots. It's coming up June 12th, running out of time before the event happens. It's going to be amazing. 16 homesteaders from all over North Carolina are coming together to give you their homesteading wisdom. Everything from butchery, cheese making, chickens, you name it, preserving. It's all going to be here at the schoolhouse. It's going to be a one-day event. We're super excited about it. Can't wait for you to join us. Go to the schoolhouselife.com backslash homestead skillshare schoolhouselife.com backslash homestead skillshare and grab your ticket before they're all sold out.